Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Going for Two. It's our 10th episode. Time flies when you're, ha- when you're having fun making podcast magic. Uh, I'm your host, Matt Brown. I'm the publisher of the Extra Points newsletter. I'm joined here, uh, as always, by Brian Fisher, my co-host. Brian, how's your bracket doing? Uh, my bracket's doing okay. Not. Uh, I'm just excited that uh, we've hit double digits on, on this year podcast, uh, as much as those double digits have ruined both of our brackets and, and one of our teams in, in, in particular. But uh, we, we won't talk about that for right now, will we? <laughs> Listen, this is actually my first year since I became a professional in this industry that I didn't bother doing one of these. I realized that um, the only way to really win is not to play. I was tired of being embarrassed by, we have a family bracket and uh, my sister you can't name a college basketball player, and uh, some of, several of my in-laws would routinely clobber me. So I figured, listen, this is the year I'm just going to sit down here. I haven't watched a whole lot of college basketball this season. I'm not really paid to do it anymore. I'm just going to enjoy the experience. And so then, of course, uh, my alma mater as a two-seed then loses to the Joel Olstein Academy somewhere in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Um, I don't know what the moral of this story is other than that existence is pain. But there you Such go. Such is life so, in March, sometimes you know? Yeah, this this is March. Anyone else is going to happen in March um, would be the oral arguments for the Alston case. You know, in, in addition to all these gigantic you know, earth shattering changes that are happening here with, with both the men's and the women's college basketball tournaments, we're going to begin the mechanism for uh, what could be the most transformational Supreme Court case in college athletics since 1984. We, we had a podcast episode a couple of weeks ago about the Regents case. Now we want to talk with somebody who really understands what's about to happen and what it means, not just for scholars of antitrust law and not just for conference commissioners, but for everybody, including listeners like you. We're going to bring on here in a little bit uh, Dr. Anita Mormon, uh, a scholar here of sports law at the University of Louisville. That's M-O-O, that's M-O-O-R-M-A-N, Mormon, uh, who will join us here in a little bit to help break down this case, why it matters and what the heck is going to happen, because I don't know. Yeah, I remember back in the day, uh, you know, covering the the O'Bannon trial and everything that was coming out of that and, and was talking with somebody, you know, knowledgeable and on such matters uh, related to the NCA. And they said this is this is really kind of the first battle in, in a year, decade long war. And the Salston case, this is kind of the next step. This is the, ne- the next big battle for the NCA. And uh, I think everybody gets the attention when a case goes to the Supreme Court, because this is a, a matter that. Uh, as we'll talk with Anita about, uh, it could have far-reaching effects, not just in terms of the NCA, in terms of the schools, the athletes, but even beyond that as well. So I think it's going to be a fascinating case for legal observers inside and outside that athletic sphere to keep an eye on. And hopefully we can provide a little more information on not only what's going to happen and play out uh, on the 30th when those oral arguments happen, but what happens beyond that as well as we get a decision and move into the summer. So let's let's bring Anita in here and maybe she can help uh, explain this a little bit here for us. Thank you. Thank you again, Anita. Let me let me start here with a stupid question for for you, because unlike every other sports blogger on the Internet, I did not actually go to law school and I'm not going to pretend that I did. Um, my understanding of, about this particular case here is that the, the 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 question is about whether institutions can cap educational related spending or education related awards to, to athletes, you know, giving an athlete a computer or paying for their engineering class fees and whether capping that constitutes an antitrust violation. Um, is that an accurate summation of what the, the, the question is here or am, am I missing something much larger? Oh, you're, you're not missing anything at all, Matt. That was absolutely the question at the trial court. And that was the question before the Ninth Circuit. 
Now, however, in the Supreme Court, it has become a pretty technical antitrust law question, um, really, <laughs> really about when that rule of reason analysis should be applied and what evidence should be permitted at each stage of that analysis. And so I know the press often refers to it as a referendum on amateurism. And to an extent it is, in that the question is, when is the NCAA's evidence or argument or justification based on amateurism going to be relevant? Or is it at all? So the NCAA mm. wants their their defense of amateurism, their justification of amateurism to be given great weight and either to exempt them from the rule of reason analysis altogether or to allow them to sort of inherently say amateurism has inherent benefits that outweigh any negative effects on the marketplace. So that's why it's important because it's a big reach for the NCAA to want to say amateurism as a concept excuses all of this potentially anti-competitive behavior. So if I understand that correctly, then hypothetically, if, if that particular argument is, is then endorsed by the Supreme Court, that there's something inherent with, with amateurism, then therefore, would, would that make it uh, impossible for then Congress a couple of months later to come back and say, well, actually, um, capping uh, name, image, and likeness benefits or capping athletic scholarships is an, anti is an antitrust violation? Would, would that, I guess, kind of de facto give the NCAA an antitrust exemption that couldn't be remedied by Congress? No, Congress could absolutely remedy it. Yeah. And if the Alston case were to turn out in favor of the NCAA, which I don't think it will, but if it were, I think that would increase quite a sense of urgency in Congress to do something and to expedite some of these reforms and some of this legislation that's currently pending. This, this was a case kind of going back that went its way through Judge Wilkins' uh, Northern District and, and the Ninth Circuit. Well, what did those lower courts really find at, at the heart of this matter? And, and how, how different is that argument going to be in when it gets in front of the Supreme Court? It's going to be really narrow in front of the Supreme Court about whether the NCAA should even have to be subject to that rule of reason analysis. And the NCAA, has, they're relying heavily on that Board of Regents case, which, of course, Sam Ehrlich talked about, I think, in an earlier podcast. They're going to rely heavily on that. Um, and then alternatively, they're still trying to say that, that amateurism as a concept should be given what's called deference um, as having pro-competitive benefits. Um, they want to be relieved of having to provide economic evidence um, that amateurism increases consumer demand or creates a more uh, a more viable product. Um, and so that that's really what's going to be at the oral arguments on the 31st is breaking down when the rule of reason analysis applies and then how and what evidence is permitted at each stage of that. So this this is interesting because as a as a dumb layman, when I've read through some of these arguments and I've read through some of the other friend of the court briefs on, on both sides, most of these arguments don't seem particularly new. A lot of the, the defense of, of the current amateurism status quo or the attacks of uh, thereof are 
would, would don't seem out of place for anything that would have been argued in the 90s or certain or in the 2000s or, or maybe even uh, in, in, in earlier cases here. Has there been anything in, in any of the filings that has surprised you or has introduced a, a novel defense or a novel attack, I guess, on what we're talking about? Or is this just an extension of the same dumb fight we've been having for forever? <laughs> Well, I think there are a couple of surprises. And, and one thing that I think is a different argument is because of the O'Bannon decision earlier, um, the, the NCA has already sort of, they lost that deference that they used to have to just basically, when anything that dealt with students, the courts just basically said, you know, we're not going to interfere with affairs of an amateur athletic association. Um, and that included even antitrust challenges for the most part. O'Bannon really reversed course on that. And so that is, has what sort of started this shift. And so that is different still because that's what the historian's brief talks about. That's what some of the antitrust lawyers briefs talks about, that this was a shift in, in how we look at NCA regulations. Hmm. And so that's kind of new to really take, go straight at the Board of Regents decision and say, we need to stop fooling ourselves and stop assuming that a footnote in dicta in that decision somehow blessed the NCAA that has grown into this billion dollar enterprise to, to never have to answer for anti-competitive activity. Now, whether it's anti-competitive, of course, is up for, you know, for debate and evidence and whatnot. <laughs> As far as the briefs that surprised me, I will say um, the first surprise was really the overwhelming agreement among sport economists, sport historians, sport business experts, even former NCAA executives that, you know, this is a business industry, uh, this is a billion dollar industry, and there's no reason why NCAA rules should be exempt from antitrust scrutiny when they manipulate that industry, when they control it or dominate it in a way that's anti-competitive and not beneficial for consumers, or in this case, for, for the athletes. So that surprising agreement, I, I think, is going to be a hard hurdle for the NCAA to get over. Um, the only other surprise I felt was sort of this fairly direct attack on um, Judge Wilkin. Yeah. To somehow suggests that that she has become the disruptive force in what was this natural evolution of reform that was underway and that she's created the disruption in the market rather than the NCA's activities. So, you know, that that was intriguing, interesting. I think the uh, the southern states, Montana and the Dakotas brief sort of did the first, you know, the first shot at the judge. And then the NCAA's reply briefs sort of went all in on that. It, this this is interesting. I, I I certainly do not claim to have a rolodex of every single sports management professor and and economist. But over the last year, <laughs> through extra points, I've gotten to know quite a few of them. Um, individuals that I think occupy a, a pretty broad ideological. Uh, 
you know, uh, continuum. And mm-hmm. I can't find, I've never spoken to anybody that would disagree with, with, with that, with that filing. And even people within this industry, people that uh, have been working in college athletics for decades and who I would describe as, as generally more conservative when it comes to player rights type issues, I think w- w- would also agree. I, I mean, we have a lot of colleges. I'm sure you could find a <laughs> professor to say most things, but, um, my own personal experience jives with what I read. What I, I read in that brief too. There's a a, a pretty substantial industry agreement that it the current, really is. Yeah, and and it has it has just in the last eight or nine months it has grown even more because I've I've been working with the California Community Colleges Association um, on some of their name, image, and likeness in a work group that the working group that the California Legislature asked to convene to look at name, image, and likeness protections for community college athletes, which you probably know were excluded from SB 206. Um, and it has it was interesting how challenging it was to find someone who would come and speak to that working group who opposed name, image, and likeness rights for athletes. And, and two years ago, you could have lined up a whole list of people who would talk about how horrible that could be and how it's going to be a threat to amateurism and it was going to undermine um, everything that that is sacred about college athletics. And now those are those folks are pretty few and far between. You can really only find them among high schools and the high school athletic federation. Oh, you goodness. You that's I had, I had forgotten about that. I remember, I remember reading that that essay from the, the head of all the high school athletic associations that really I mean, if I was to think of all of the existential threats to high school athletics, name, image, and likeness would probably not crack the top ten. But you could you could <laughs> find some individuals who who feel differently. Um, I, I wanted to ask one other quick thing here. Um, sure. You know, on 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 this note, I, I may have missed it, but you know, given that the previous presidential administration said a lot of things about a lot of things, I don't recall their Justice Department or, uh, you know, even members from the Trump administration specifically having really strong opinions about college athlete rights or any of these legal cases generally. But my understanding mm-hmm. is that the Biden administration's Justice Department has asked to argue in favor of the athletes in, in this particular case. Um, and one, am I misremembering things? And two, should anybody read anything into that, that now the, the, the actual Justice Department is is engaged in this conversation. Right, right. Well, you're not misremembering it. I, I don't remember any really vocal interest from the Trump administration on this, on the issue, um, particularly not the name, image, and likeness issue. However, I think it was probably, what, just maybe two or three weeks before the inauguration. Oh, you're right, yeah. That, you know, that... Um, um, I think the head of the antitrust division in the Department of Justice at that time, maybe the interim head, and I, I don't recall the name, that he did send a sort of a caution letter to the NCAA suggesting that their proposed new rules for name, image, and likeness were still not going to pass muster, and that that at least he had concerns that there was still going to be some restraints in there that were going to be antitrust violations. Supposedly, that's what Uh, caused the NCAA to pause their adoption of those new proposals in January. Sure. So that was really the first hint I had from the Trump administration um, that they were going to weigh in on this. Since then, of course, you're absolutely right. The Biden administration, the Justice Department uh, filed a brief in support of uh, uh, Alston, and they've also asked to argue at oral argument. 
So that'll be significant. Typically, the administrative agency is responsible for enforcing a law, what they think it means, and how they feel that the enforcement mechanisms need to work for it to be effective. Those, those are fairly important opinions or positions to take. They're absolutely not controlling, but they can be pretty persuasive. And you go back to 1984, the Solicitor General argued in, in that case as well. I, I'm curious, what what do you think the government is, is really going to argue in this case? And, and, and how much of an emphasis do these, these justices put on the government even being a part of this? I get the impression from the Justice Department's brief that they really want to avoid an implied antitrust exemption, that they do not want to go down that path again of having a court create an exemption um, for an industry segment, that that's their role to decide and that the antitrust laws are supposed to apply to all industry activities. And there's nothing inherent about what the NCA is doing as, a, as an industry that should be exempt. Um, and so I think they're taking a, a more broad approach that this rule of reason analysis is appropriate and there's no reason why we can't apply it in the context of intercollegiate athletics. And I think that should be persuasive because that also aligns them with almost all these amicus briefs that take that same position. So from one branch of the government to another, if you go back to abandon, I mean, they, they, that was appealed to the Supreme Court. They did not take that. Why did the Supreme Court get involved in this case in particular? Wow, that's a good question. Hmm. If I had to speculate. Um, but th- this is, we, we welcome speculation. <laughs> Yeah. Speculation is good, right? Um, I, I kind of wonder if, and, and I honestly don't remember who brought the appeal in O'Bannon. The petition I believe for it was the O'Bannon lawyers uh, from the Ninth Circuit out of that decision. Yeah. So I, I, if my memory serves me and I totally could be wrong and, and we can follow up on this. Um, they're looking at the specific legal issue that's been asserted on appeal. And I think the novelty of when this rule of reason analysis applies in a in sort of a joint venture context involving intercollegiate athletics, I think that's a novel enough question that has not been answered by the Supreme Court that that's why they're willing to hear this one where O'Bannon, that issue being framed up was different coming from the petitioner where they probably wanted broader remedy. This is pretty narrow that Supreme Court likes narrow. They like small questions of, you know, um, fine points of federal law or constitutional law. That's when they're going to get in there and try to answer um, those questions. So they definitely prefer to work, you know, with a scalpel when they're doing these things rather than a sledgehammer. Just so, we can understand things from a calendar perspective. My, my, my understanding here is that next week is when arguments are, are supposed to be held. Um, what are we thinking timeline for an actual decision? And how might that impact the timelines of a couple other big decisions? Because I've been hearing, well, you might hear something this summer from the Supreme Court. Well, there's a whole bunch of other things happening on on, on the athlete rights front this summer as well. And trying to figure right, out what's going to happen when and up, how. Right, they're ready to fall. Um, So oral arguments are in March. Uh, June 1st would probably be the latest. So I would expect something maybe even earlier than that. So I think May is not unreasonable time. Um, If memory serves me in the PGA uh, versus Martin case, oral arguments were also in February or March. 
Um, and they made a decision in May, fairly early in May. Um, so that's, if I were, if I were betting, I would certainly be looking at May to get some sort of an answer uh, from the Supreme Court. May would de- would would line up well, I think, mm-hmm. with it both, uh, yeah, f- congressional like at the federal level timelines, and then also what's happening here at the state level because um, this is not just an esoteric academic exercise. We have Florida's state name, image, and likeness bill that's scheduled to go into effect. Brian, help me. Is, is it is it June one or July? I believe one? it's July one, but I might be mistaken on that. I, I think I think it, I think it is July one, and and I, I you know following this, it's, it's I've been you know a little worried that well maybe maybe words not. The right, worried isn't the right word, but thought that perhaps we would not have a Supreme Court resolution before Florida went into effect. And I realize this is maybe a slightly different question, but do you anticipate litigation is going to actually prevent the Florida law from going into effect this summer before some of these other things are resolved? Or will we actually have upwards of weeks of unregulated mayhem that I'm sure that, you know, school administrators are, are just terrified of right now? Um. Well, part of that is because I think the Supreme Court will decide in favor of Alston that, no, I don't think that the NCA is going to pursue any kind of an injunction or something that would delay uh, the, effect, the impact or the effective date of the Florida statute. Um, <laughs> because I honestly think that let, let's hypothesize that the Supreme Court decides this case late April, early May, um, you know, Congress is going to continue to work on their NIL legislation. And from what I've been told is there is broad agreement that something needs to happen. There are certainly different camps and a lot of different bills, six, I think, bills pending right right now. Um, But all of those collectively, that's broad consensus that we need to do something. So, you know, the word on the street is that, you know, they can move really quickly once they're ready. Um, uh, so it just appears as though they're incapable of, <laughs> of legislating <laughs> that they actually can when they're ready. Um, so, and I, so I think that, that that will happen before July 1st. So I think we will have a federal umbrella over name, image, and likeness before July 1st. But I think it's going to be complemented by a lot of state laws that are still going to have some variation. Uh, So for me, what I'm tracking is the activity of the Uniform Law Commission, which is trying to develop a uniform state law that they would then try to ultimately get all 50 states to sign on to um, so that we would have consistency at both the federal level and then some broad uniformity on key metrics at the state level. That regulatory uncertainty does seem to be the thing in my conversations that causes the most angst, more so than the regulations themselves. Just the concept of Iowa and Georgia and Florida and Colorado having something a little bit different. Because from from my reading, I mean, I've looked at probably a dozen of these things at the state level. None of them are identical. Um, they're, they're they're similar in, in some broad ways, but 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 still that's still different. It, it is it's it's interesting here talking to you because I feel like both your predictions, if I'm hearing this correctly, about how this particular case will go and also how this summer will play out, seems to be a little bit different, I think, from maybe what I've been hearing from other economists or, or other um, 
even people who follow sports law, and maybe that's just because I, maybe I follow a more cynical group or maybe a, a more substantial, <laughs> like, you know, yeah, hi Andy, <laughs> if, if you're listening. Right. But like, um, the, the kind of the superficial response as well, this is at its, at its heart, a case involving worker rights or athlete rights. And the Supreme court is pretty conservative and generally doesn't favor the expansion of, of, of worker or athlete rights. Therefore it's, it stands to conclude they would probably rule in favor of the NCAA. Um, that's the superficial kind of Twitter, you know, reading here and, and listening to you, it seems like that is not accurate. Um, why, why do you think, why do you think that is? Why, why, I guess, why, why, why would, is, is it more reasonable to, to assume a more narrow reading um, that would not benefit the NCAA in this case? Right. And part of that is that, that there is, and it's an interesting juxtaposition there between conservative judges who maybe don't want, you know, don't expand employee rights or individual rights versus conservative judges who love unrestrained markets right and and who want who think that capitalism is at its best and and freedom economic freedom is best served through minimal restraints um those two you know competing philosophies are at at stake here and and i just feel like there are enough justices that are more interested at propping up open markets then there are those that are worried about, you know, enhancing e- individual economic rights above a level that w- they, you know, might if that was the only issue at stake. Um, so that is how I got where I got. So I guess sure. we could see whether, you know, we should probably do a parlay or something <laughs> and, <laughs> and see who's right. Right. No, I, that, that is part of what's made this issue so fascinating for me legislatively, because I mean, this this has been the popular argument for economists here for a while. Right. And if we look at the state level, you know, uh, from from my vantage point, a lot of the state bills are quite bipartisan. The, the Florida bill, which is, I think, you know, airs pretty strongly on, and, uh, as, in favor of, of athlete rights, uh, was written and, and signed by Republicans. Uh, the California bill was mostly driven by my relatively progressive Democratic uh, individuals, and it's been bipartisan in a lot of different states. But at the federal level, until very recently, that wasn't necessarily the case. You know, we have some changes now. Mitt Romney has, has been on the on various Senate boards that, that have proposed changes here. But I'm, I'm willing to bet that maybe, you know, Senator Romney and Senator Chris Murphy don't see this issue exactly the same way. But you're right. It isn't something on the surface that you could slice exactly on, at, on a partisan level, which is really rare. I can't think of very many, I, mean, I guess, other than some infrastructure or some, you know, natural resource regulation where the dividing camps aren't as neatly partisan in 2021, you know, maybe in 1974 it would have looked a little bit different, but this, this really is kind of a unique issue. Yeah, it is unique. And honestly, I was very skeptical that the, that the, that Congress would kind of get their act together. I felt that, you know, there were principal differences in those bills. Only one was bipartisan. Um, it's just the, the, the word is that that's not reflective of the majority of them, that, that they do see this happening. Um, but, you know, who knows? I do agree. <laughs> I, I do agree that, that on the federal level, it's, it's hard to know how we're going to get from what's currently pending and all the different committees yeah. to a, you know, a, an agreed 
bill that that both Congress, uh, both houses of Congress will sign off on. Um, but like I say, we shall see. And yeah. there certainly are skeptics in my field that think that even if the Supreme Court um, upholds Alston, it's going to be super narrow. Um, it's not going to really change much on the ground. It's still all going to come back to what's happening in in Congress. I think that is what Sam uh, predicted for us, if I remember correctly. And and I mean, look, we, we can be clear on this. If any of us knew with a certainty exactly what was going to happen, my newsletter would be a lot more expensive. <laughs> and so would ad rates for this for the for this podcast. Um, Brian, did, did we miss anything here? Is there is there something else we, we want to make sure we, we mention? Well, if we could just go back a little bit, say say it is May, and, yeah. and because we've kind of said that this is a bit of a one sided uh, against the NCA in terms of their arguments and, and everybody on against their side. What what ultimately, if if you're a student athlete, if you're a parent out there, if you're uh, an athletic director, what do you ultimately expect to kind of happen in May if if the Supreme Court kind of rules, whether it's narrowly or broadly, against the NCA? What is the like on the ground boot? Uh, have to take out of that decision. So you say if they rule uh, in favor or against? Uh, against the NCA. Yeah. yeah. So if they rule against the NCA and just sort of affirm what the Ninth Circuit did, I think come June first, July first, Florida's going to do its thing, and athletes in Florida are going to start dallying with name, image, and likeness, um, and that is going to raise a a question is what is the NCA's response going to be? So at that point, the NCA has to, they have to roll out their rules, whatever they're going to be. They have to get those rules adopted and in place by August 1st. Um, California is trying to accelerate the effective date of their law from 2023 to either August or, or January 1st, 2022. Um, I think other states that are currently considering NIL legislation are all looking for 2021 or 2022 effective dates. Um, so if I were telling parents and athletes, I would say you need to probably hire a consultant <laughs> to figure out what you can and cannot do um, and, and just try to navigate you know, that, that space carefully for at least six months to a year um, until we get something sort of uniform in place. And I know that was a wandering answer, which sort of shows you just how, how fluid it's going to be. That is on, on one hand, if you are somebody that I think, you know, Brian and I are, we're, we're, we're generally support and expansion of, of athlete rights, but you, you look at something like this and think, you know, if that's all true. The big winners, it seems like in these next nine months, it's probably going to be billable hours rather than, than than individual athletes because this marketplace is so complicated until that yeah. gets uh, you know fettered out a little bit and that tends to be the the uh, the, the true undefeated force in college sure. athletics sure. you know and attorneys and consultants you know they're they're coming out of the woodwork now and marketing oh, sure. agencies and one-stop Nil consultants are are emerging almost daily on social media um, but I think it's important to realize that no athlete has to start decide today that they want to start monetizing their NIL. It doesn't prevent them from really becoming strategic and smart about developing their personal brand, really building their social media networks, identifying different, um, um, different avenues in which they want to position themselves to take advantage of some of those monetization opportunities 
once they feel that they understand what the regulatory landscape is going to look like. So my, my advice to parents and students is this is going to be in your future. It may not be three months from now, it may not be six months from now, but this is a, a real opportunity. Um, and there are a lot of things you can do that don't violate any rules on the books right now. So you should be doing those things. Um, kids, that is an endorsement to keep posting. Your Twitter account won't go away. Your Instagram account won't go away. Never <laughs> perfect, log off. <laughs> perfect example, right, is Sedona Prince's uh, TikTok video. Right. Right. Oh, millions, um, millions and millions. Six, well, how many millions of views already? So, yeah. it, it, I mean, I, now I just get press, re- press releases whenever whenever they come out. Um, yeah. that, I mean, that that's a completely different conversation, particularly oh, yeah, for, for, <laughs> for women <laughs> athletics. Um, I, we are we are bumping up here on the, on the time limit. Anita, this we has try. been really helpful. Thank you so much for, for coming on here. Um, I think that this this will really help uh, our listeners better understand this case and how it fits into what projects to be a very busy summer. Very busy summer. Thank you, Matt. Thank you, Brian. Enjoyed it. This week's episode here of Going For Two is brought to you by Season Media. You know, I, I can tell you when, when I launched Extra Points, it's been about a year ago, I felt like, okay, I know how to be a writer. I know journalism, I know open records, I know blogging, I know SEO, I know some of those things, but there's a lot about running a business that I really didn't know. Even things that, that kind of fell under content that, that I thought I knew. And as I'm growing, one, it, it's the advice from people like Season Media has been really in, invaluable, right? This is a, a company that's able to help you with your full digital strategy. If you need to start something, enhance something, get something captured in 2021, Season Media is there for you. They are a creative agency that's built for uh, built on knowledge of tech and sports and media, and they're taking new bookings here for graphic design, web design, social media, and creative strategy. You can text 929 929- Two two four four three one five, or visit seasonmedia.co. That's spelled S Z N Media.co um, to help bring your brand and your story to life. This episode is also brought to you by Extra Points. Um, if you enjoy this this these podcasts, you're probably going to enjoy the Extra Points newsletter, which covers all of these sorts of issues four days a week um, in extra depth. Everything from what's happening right in these various court cases to state state law. We, we uh, This week, I, I read like six different studies on the Flutie effect, uh, which is I, I think something you're gonna hear a lot about this week with, uh, with both college basketball tournaments going on here. This is what happens when a team gets a big upset. Do they get a boost in, in applications, in admissions quality, in fundraising? How long does that last? These are all the kind of things that you're going to find out about on Extra Points. If you're a paid subscriber, you get four of these a week and access to a special chat room. And if you're if you're a Going For Two listener, you can become a, a paid Extra Points subscriber on the cheap. Head to www.extrapointsmb.com slash go for two. That's G-O-F-O-R-2 to get 20% off a paid subscription. You can get a 20% off a monthly subscription or an annual subscription. That's www.extrapointsmb.com slash go for two. Um, that was a really interesting conversation. And and not only I think that that helped me, a big dumb idiot, understand some of the, the nuances in this particular decision. Um, I feel like she's one of the, the first people that I've talked to that's really expressed optimism that the NCAA is not going to prevail 
And I, maybe maybe this is just like a, a limited sample group, but over the last 48 hours, I've seen that a, a little bit more. I don't know if it's a generational gap or a political cynicism gap or something, but you know, maybe, maybe this isn't a, a, a foregone conclusion. Well, the only thing I would say is that uh, there have been similar cases to where you think there is kind of uh, everybody's leaning one way and the Supreme Court comes back out with a decision that goes the exact opposite of what everybody was was thinking. But uh, it does seem like when when you look at the legal arguments, when you look at uh, listen to things that uh, Anita just talked with us about, it does seem like the NCAA is kind of backed into a corner right here. And and they're at least uh, getting into this case and, and trying to find a way out. And I, it's going to be difficult. I, I think the, the amount of change that's going to happen uh, on the ground is we talked about with Anita uh, and, and just in general, uh, in terms of the big picture of NCAA athletics, it's going to change so much over the next six to eight months. And, and it's almost shocking to keep up with all these daily kind of, kind of changes and, and doing so in the middle of March Madness, no less. So uh, right. it's been it's been interesting to, to follow and um, a, a really a big shock, I think, to the system uh, coming this summer. I, th- I think that's the most important takeaway. Is it, it's it's really impossible for me to imagine a scenario where the NCAA gets such an overwhelming victory that it's able to to really push back on this wave of change that's happening. Um, so maybe would you like this expansion is is coming? Like the 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 idea of of amateurism as we defined it in 1995, carrying the day in 2022. I think I think that's dead. It's just going to be a matter of, of how dead and to what extent that can keep evolving and we can kind of expand the, the balance of what is acceptable within amateurism beyond this particular case. But even if they win, I think it's going to be one of those things where they kind of win and lose at the same time rather rather than a, a 40 to nothing kind of blowout. So we're, this is definitely something we'll continue to track. And if nothing else, I think the the entire saga, whether it's this case or others, it just really kind of reinforces how asleep at the wheel the NCAA has has really been, and especially Mark Emmert, who obviously has come under fire quite a bit this week for the for the differences in the NCAA tournament. But uh, you, you go back to that O'Bannon case that was decided in 2014. Uh, this Alston case has been in the pipeline several, for several years, uh, even before it went to uh, through the appeals courts. So this has been on the horizon for the NCAA leadership to kind of say that. This is coming down the pike. And and they really didn't sit there and, and just kind of sat on their hands and didn't do much. And so I think we're seeing the catch up effort being played uh, throughout the, the lobbying efforts in Congress and whatnot. But uh, it might be just a little too little too late for a lot of these leaders who knew that they could have gotten out in front of it, but are now kind of forced to be reactionary instead of being proactive. Yeah, this none of this had to happen. We could be doing a podcast about something completely different. And it's funny because this is what I this, I hear this even when when talking to ADs and other senior leaders, they're like, we're, ju- we're sick of talking about it, especially because a, a lot of these issues are not going to be game changers for every institution. There's not a whole lot of big West bag men out there or, or car dealers or, or or even companies wanting to sponsor big ten, big West athlete Snapchats. It's not part of their day to day experience. This could have been resolved 12 subcommittees ago. And yet. Here we are, and they're probably going to end up with a solution that's far worse than they could have potentially negotiated eight years ago. But um, the people who screwed up are will probably be just fine. Nobody, nobody will learn anything. Nobody will face any consequences for their actions because that is how this industry works. They will still be cashing checks, and those billable hours will still be racking up. That those two truisms in college athletics that are not going to change after this decision—that is for sure. We well, you know what else is racking up, Brian. Our 
downloads, our subscribers, because this podcast is growing. We are appreciative of all of your help for that. And we want that to keep going. So if you enjoy going for two, if you were to leave us a positive review, or perhaps even, you know, hitting hitting the five star mark, four stars, okay, five stars, great, if, if you like it. Um, we've been seeing more and more of that over the past two weeks. And that's helped increase our audience, which makes things easier for our newsletter. It makes things easier for this podcast and the other creative works that we're here that we're trying to do. Um, so saying nice things and sharing the sharing the podcasts, it helps a lot. Um, you can find me at Matt Brown EP on Twitter. You can find Extra Points at www.extrapointsmb.com. Brian, where can the people find you? The easiest place is on Twitter at Brian D. Fisher, B-R-Y-A-N-D-F-I-S-C-H-E-R. All my work usually ends up uh, coming through that uh, feed and great place to get my musings on it as well on Oral Roberts' upset of Ohio State. Um, we're going to take that last part out there in post. And um, yeah, <laughs> so I, that, that hasn't totally sunk in there yet. I'm, I'm just going to choose not to acknowledge it. Um, so if I don't acknowledge it, it can't hurt me anymore. Uh, that's that's Brian. I'm Matt. Thanks so much here for, for listening. Uh, thank you to everybody except the Oral Roberts men's basketball team. We'll catch up with you next week.